This is a shock podcast. everyone this is Jonathan and welcome to episode 8 of From Grit to Great podcast where we get to learn and be excited about anything that fascinates us about the corporate world for millennials and also by millennials and for today's session we're going to be featuring another guest who's going to be sharing some expertise about something that's very close to my heart and that topic is about diversity I think it's a buzzword that a lot of organizations have been trying to build for a decade now and the reason for that is because since globalization has started we've realized that not only is it easy to travel to one part of the world it's also easier to communicate with others regardless of language barrier regardless of our differences in ethnicity gender language and also personalities I am a big believer that the reason why conflicts and politics happen at work is because of those differences. And the ultimate goal of a successful organization is being able to manage those differences and leverage on it as a strength and not something as a weakness. So, I've been mentioning to you guys every time we invite a guest, that person has to be someone who's close to our hearts. And this time, I'd like to call on stage Mr. Bert Verkamer. Bert is a Belgian national who currently lives between New York and Johannesburg in South Africa. He has worked in close to 50 countries and lived in a few. Is being humble about that by the way. He's a former executive of a large global nonprofit organization and CEO of a startup company. He currently runs his own businesses focusing on executive coaching, something also that I dabble with around diversity management and creating large scale training using technology. By the way, when we say large scale, we mean training about 10,000 to 20,000 people and more in a scalable and affordable way while showing learning impact. So, gladiators in suits, I'd like to please ask you to give a virtual hug and some claps to our guest, Bert. Hello Bert. Hi Jonathan, how are you? Thank you for the introduction, eh? <laughs> Thank you again for giving us the opportunity to speak with you today and for your sharing of your expertise. So you're in Johannesburg right now, right? I am exactly. It's summer here, so I follow the summers. I'll be in New York when it's summer there and I'll be in Joburg when it's summer here. Summer meaning what's the temperature? Just want to check. We're now above 20 20 degrees Celsius, 20 25 degrees Celsius. We had lots of rain. Climate change is happening here as well, but uh, today seems to be a very sunny nice day. That's a breezy cool <laughs> weather for us. Cuz for us we treat 20 degrees, we would wear jackets already in this part of the world. I'll be, so lucky I'll be putting on my shorts after this call. No you can't see, <laughs> but I still wanted to dress professionally. <laughs> All right, so thank you. So let's get to business. So what I'll be doing is I'll be throwing some four questions about diversity and our ultimate goal here for the benefit of our listeners is for them to appreciate what can organizations, especially from leadership levels like executive managers, Mm-hmm. Uh, C-suite leaders and all these positions, what can they do to improve diversity? And if they haven't started that yet, how can they start ramping up that concept among their employees so that they can build a better organization? So I want to mm-hmm. ask a few questions. My first question has something to do with the definition of diversity and identifying if a company is already in that position. So I'm a believer of the quote, what can be measured 
can be improved. So the benefits of institutionalizing diversity in the workplace has been established for years now. So we're not talking about diversity because it's a new thing. It's been there for a decade. And the reason why organizations do this is because they know that investing in it heavily means that they can improve their employees' ability to interact with each other. It's also proven in a lot of research that companies that establish diversity and practice diversity are more innovative, more sustainable, and they get to stay in the long run. So I want to ask, Bert, in your experience as an expert on global inclusion, when can a company say that they have achieved diversity in the workplace? Is there a journey that they have to undergo for this? Sure. No, I think that's a great question, right? And, and, and one that many companies I work with ask as well, like, how do, how do we know? There's a lot of verbal commitment to the topic, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, those are the terms that we throw out there, right? But there's not always good execution. And it sort of starts from why a company would be doing, uh, would be investing or, or working on this topic, right? And so I want to give you three main reasons. And, and those actually really affect the resources people put towards it. The first one is, I just want to be in compliance. And it's a great mm-hmm. You want to be in compliance, right? But if that's the only reason we see that there's less and less resources being put towards this. You just kind of want to check a box, right? A second one, which I think people, uh, when we see companies doing that, we, we see there's more effort and resources is, I want to build competencies of my people and of my organization around this topic. And now we move away from compliance. The last reason or key reason uh, we see with some companies is we really want to work on social justice uh, and, and equity. We see our role as a company beyond just you know delivering a service or a good uh, we also believe that we are part of society and that we want to counter that and that that, that, that affects uh, resources diversity management done bad makes people think that it's diversity itself that's the problem oh, I agree work. oh we tried that right uh, oh we got confirmed that these things don't work we got confirmed in stereotypes etc cetera, etc cetera. and then uh, you would measure yourself or score yourself are you either a best practice are you progressive are you proactive reactive or inactive. And so that would help a company to establish where they are. I have two questions though, because it's so interesting. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm, because this is going to be ironic because we're talking about diversity. (laughs) So judgment has to be taken out of this context. But when you say, for example, that number three reason why people do diversity training Mm -hmm. and diversity institutions in their organizations, because they believe in social justice and equity. But it's also true, I'd like to think to believe that social justice and equity is dependent on your society. So if a company happens to be existing in a country that believes in it, there's a higher chance that diversity is also going to be exerted in the workplace, which is why I've noticed multinational companies who happen to be in Europe or in United States are the same multinational companies that are beholden to this value of social justice and equity. Because let's face it, Bert, I don't see this much in Asian countries Mm -hmm. when it talk about diversity because it's the right thing to do. I see this mostly in Asian countries because it's what HR requires us because it's trendy and because it mm-hmm. makes our employees better in what they do. Am, am I right or shake me up if, I, if I'm getting this in a different way? Uh, no, I, I think that a company rightfully, hopefully, right, looks at their reputation. And of course, reputation, you know, is, is a mirror from what society is looking at, how they value mm. you as a company, obviously, right? So I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think as a leader in every company, irrespective of what your country believes of it, by now, I hope that people have realized that diversity, proper diversity management, right? Not the bad diversity management, really adds to the bottom line as well. So if 
anything, you know, I'm very happy to convince every CEO that diversity really adds to the bottom line as well. If that's how we can enter and we go beyond just compliance check, I, I, I'm very happy and ready to have that conversation. Yeah. And can you also, because you mentioned about belongingness a while ago, can you give me, because mm-hmm. I'm sure someone's asking at the back of their mind, how do you differentiate diversity versus belongingness in this case? Well, if you look at these different terms, then diversity is more a current state, right? It more refers to some quantitative measures. Are we diverse? Mm. Belonging, belonging is more of a process and is more a continuous way of making sure employees feel like they belong in the environment that they are. And I think we all know that diversity doesn't necessarily mean anything good, right? You can be very diverse, but it can be a very toxic or, or bad environment. Belonging is where you want to get to. And it's sort of a stage you never reach, right? It's a continuous process of improvement. Mm -hmm. So can I say, therefore, that your company can be diverse because there are women in the executive committee, but it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily enjoying belongingness when it's people don't feel that they can easily share their thoughts in a meeting just because they're different versus the rest of the employees. Exactly. And I was going to give the example of, you know, being in meetings and the women or female identifying people on this podcast will probably nod their head right now. I hear it from so many female identifying people that they say, you know, I'm in a meeting and, you know, my male colleague just talks over me. I saw this joke recently. I forget who it was from, but uh, it was along the lines of, I would love to tell a joke in a meeting, but then uh, people would only laugh when my male colleague tells it again 10 minutes later. And, you know, I, I think we have that issue that yes, we might now have females in, in the C-suite or on boards, et cetera, but they aren't respected for their expertise, for who they are, for their background, et cetera, et cetera. So th- yes, diversity is, we have women in the C-suite. Belonging is, they are part of the conversation, part of the meetings, et cetera. Interesting. Okay, let me proceed to topic number two. Now that we have mm-hmm. established baseline, being on the same page with mm-hmm. diversity is. So obviously the pandemic is going to stay for a bit longer. Uh, mm-hmm. I was hopeful. <laughs> I was hopeful that I would be able to finally leave and travel this December, but mm-hmm. the Omicron has been looming. And with this comes remote work. So it seems like remote work or hybrid work is still going to stay and be part of the new normal. How do you think does remote work, and I'm talking about people not being able to see themselves face-to-face affect people's abilities to be more inclusive? Because diversity is already, as we've mentioned on paper, belonging or being inclusive in this place can be affected. How do you think will that shape since we're still working from home doing all Zoom meetings? We know that before COVID, there was research and there were experiments around remote working or working from home. But it was generally sort of generally seen as less conducive or maybe for some for some positions, yes, uh, et cetera. I think there were a lot of trust issues from management as well. And, and I think that the latest research I see that um, has now quite flipped to be shown to be neutral or even better sometimes, right? Mm. Uh, well, better. It depends on the measure that we use. It seems that there's higher productivity, but it also seems people work longer and, and that kind of stuff. And as with so many things, there's pro and con. I'd like to look at maybe the more marginalized identities. Let's look at sort of lower socioeconomic identities. Some of the benefits here are when you work from home, maybe you have to take care of others, such as family or children. And now, you, now you can combine that with work, right? Or you don't have to hire support. So that, that's, I think, sort of something that we see. You might have worse housing conditions. You might have a longer commute, for example, right? Now you, you can work from home or you might not have good infrastructure. 
factors such as reliable internet, separate office space to work from. And also, by the way, yeah, caring for others while working isn't really ideal. So we see these pro and these con. There's longer lists available, definitely. It'll be interesting to see what will happen when we go to the office uh, and that becomes an option again. Can we keep the good from both? while countering the bad from both, right? It's not always good to be in an office either. Uh, at least I sometimes want to have my, you know, working alone and not being an open plan office and, and that kind of thing. What we see is that if diversity is already a focus in your work, it's sort of transversal in how you treat it, part of your corporate values, your vision, uh, how you operate, then we see that these things can, can turn out to be really good, actually. And so the encouragement remains irrespective of whatever's happening externally to you in society or to you as an organization, do you keep diversity in mind in everything that you do? Because mm -hmm. this is what I'm trying to realize recently for mm. someone who's also fascinated with diversity. Most of us think that diversity is about religion, ethnicity, gender, which I think is the superficial definition of it. A lot of us mm. fail to accept that diversity is also about differences on how you live and also how you think, which mm -hmm. in some literature is also known as cognitive diversity. So I love it when you mentioned a while ago some people are single and some people are breadwinners or are parents. And so mm -hmm. respecting diversity is respecting the idea that when lunchtime strikes, you're not just eating because it's lunchtime. You probably are managing your household chores or your children because you happen to be a parent. And so it mm -hmm. asks the question now, how is your company's policies friendly enough that when people, for example, conduct meetings that spill over lunchtime, what are you going to do to intervene and make sure that everyone's private time is also respected? Am I on the same page with you on this part with diversity? Yeah, no, definitely. So if we look at how the software of the mind, how we think and how we behave, and by the way, software of the mind isn't my term. It's, it's a term by, by Hofstede, um, the culturalist. So how, Thank you how for the operate, footnote. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to claim to, to something to be mine when it really is not, right? But I, that term software of the mind is some, one I really like. And so he actually distinguishes between, you know, your personality, even two twins are different, right? Your personality. And we all know the MBTI and these personality traits and, and, and that kind of stuff, right? Then there's human nature, like biology. All of us act a certain way because you know, we're human beings, right? So I will get a bit hangry when I don't have food or we all look for social comfort and that kind of stuff. And in between is what we call your behavior based on your identities, what you're socialized into. And an easy one I can share here is, you know, are you more direct or indirect communicator? Uh, that is not something you're born with. You're not born with a, with a preference for, for communicating more directly or more indirectly. And so it's at that level that we see difference, that we want to approach difference from a diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, perspective. And then based on that, how do we judge difference, right? So if I'm a more direct communicator, I might call an indirect communicator somebody who beats around the bush or somebody mm. who is a bit evasive. Or the other way around, if I'm indirect communicator, I might call a direct communicator somebody who is rude or in your face and that kind of stuff. So we all have these judgments towards difference based on our identities. And that is really what we want to work on, you know, that mindset. How amazing is it that you might be able to to deal with both direct and indirect communication. So indirect communication is wonderful when you want to keep the harmony of the group or where we have more negative messages to deliver, right? Direct communication is great in emergency uh, or crisis situations or when there's lots of people in the room who have lots of complex tasks to do. So it's not an, an, an or or here. It's really, can I learn to appreciate difference and really act or operate in both of them? 
I love how you said that because I think there's this connotation that we always think that you should always choose between A and B. You know, mm-hmm. can I get someone who's good looking and is also smart? Can I get someone who's smart is also nice? But you have to ask the question, can I have both? I think I deserve mm-hmm. to have both. And I think it's a good reminder that diversity is not about choosing between two opposing ideas. It's about yearning and undergoing that journey to be able to strike a balance between two different concepts but can be applicable for you. Thank you. That's a good realization. Exactly. So topic number three. This time, Bert, I want to be more practical because I think a lot of our listeners will be wanting to put this into a real office situation. So I have here a case yes. study. I actually pulling this because it's one of the letters sent to us, but I'm going to be using it in this episode. If you were to coach this person, what would you say to this person? So let me read first the letter. So hi, Jonathan. I'm a newly installed team leader managing a remote customer service team of 12 colleagues, seven of which are based in Europe. I have never met them and we have been in communication for a month, mostly via email and instant messenger. Occasionally, we do video calls to discuss complex work. I see myself as a very friendly person. I explain thoroughly the next steps of our work and I love putting emojis and smileys in my emails to warm up conversations. I have an idea where this person comes from. (laughs) My colleagues seem to sit on a different boat. I find their emails too short and cold when they respond with okay and noted. So one-liners. Am I demanding too much when I think that they should also warm up in our conversations or am I missing something here? So this is a letter sent by Michael from Manila in the Philippines. So obviously, Mm -hmm. there are so many layers of concepts of diversity, belongingness, and inclusion here. So if you were to coach this person, and I think this is something interesting Mm -hmm. that a lot of our managers would like to know, what would you do? Yeah, no, a great example, right? And, and that's the stuff that I work or deal with a lot, starting from case studies and then developing training around that. And so I think there's two levels here. Let me go to the very practical level first. There's a few things going on here. And, and for this type of analysis, we want to look at some general cultural value dimensions, we call them. So value dimensions. Uh, they're the equivalent of personality types, but for culture and identity. And so the two that are going on here immediately, I think, are the first one, that direct indirect communication that actually I mentioned earlier. Mm. We also call it high and low context sometimes. It's a different terminology. So high context is where the words are not all of the meaning. We need the context to understand the words. And low context is the words are all of the meaning. Uh, We don't need context. The second one is, to what extent do you favor a task orientation? I'm just here to get the task done. And the relationship orientation, which means I need to trust you and understand you before I can get a task done. Uh, And those are very different. Yes. Please validate if my impressions are correct here, because based from research Mm -hmm. and also from my experience, am I right that in Asian settings where our viewers will come yeah. from, there's a lot of high context communication, right? And I, I yeah, would, um, Go ahead, go ahead. There is. There is, ex- exactly. The thing is we want to, less and less we want to start using geographical uh, regions to assign you are more X or Y. But in mm. general, there's a higher probability, I think, that somebody who is from Asia, which is, you know, the continent with the biggest population, people are different, right? But in general, the probability might be somewhat higher that somebody is more, more higher context, right? Where a smile can mean 15 different things based on the context that you are in. So I agree with you. It is probable that Michael is slightly more high context than whoever he's communicating with in Europe. 
same thing with relationship orientation, right? In general, we can say there's a higher probability in Asia that people are more relationship oriented, mm. right? And so we see here a disconnect with Michael, who might be more high context and more relationship oriented, who is, you know, adding things to the conversation in the email, etc., with a counterpart that might be more low context and more task oriented, right? And so I think that's where the clash happens. And so similar to how I was judging earlier on direct, indirect communication, task people, people who have a preference for task orientation, they will judge relationship orientation as those who, can we get to the job, please? You know, can we stop talking? Excuse me, but that's not relevant for the job to be done, right? They'll be judging mm-hmm. along those lines. A relationship person will call a task person somebody who is dry, is cold. Too I, serious. I, I can I say that? Too mm-hmm. serious. Totally. Too serious. I, I don't feel them and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So again, we're going to judge from our preference. We're going to judge the other person. And so the training would lie in Michael understanding where he comes from, self-awareness, where the other might come from, awareness about the other, understanding marginalization and dominance, right? So generally the Western behavior is seen as more dominant, not always, but is, might be seen as more dominant. And so how do we behave around that? Uh, before we can even talk about, you know, how do you now deal with that? Uh, so I think that's really what's going on here in, in this case. Can we also say, therefore, that Michael should understand that he's not superior nor inferior to how he communicates with his teammates? Exactly. And so here comes in the second level I want to sort of approach. So the first level is more practical, right? So if we look at training, we always look at the ABC plus values. And many of your listeners might know this. But so A is the attitude or your mindset. B is behavior or or skills, if you want. C is cognition or knowledge. And then we always want to look at the values as well. It's my first first time. It's my first time. To okay. actually hear about this. So thank you for letting me know. So yeah, yeah go ahead. I don't want to get too academic, Jonathan, but there is an amazing model called the Developmental Model of Intercultural Sensitivity, the DMIS. I'm not going to go too deep, but I'm going to give you the two main, main phases. Phase one is, are you more ethnocentric? And in the ethnocentric stages, you look more at the world from your own perspective, right? And so Michael, my assumption is he's, he's a bit more ethnocentric, right? He's sort of judging the, the counterpart, right? So in the ethnocentric stages, we're going to have quite some judgment about the other, like, mm, they're, they're weird. Why couldn't they? Why shouldn't they? Right? Mm. And that's exactly what Michael has said in your case as well. Is Michael, um, is Michael the person who probably is thinking like my way is the best way or my way is the only way. Can we say that he's like that? Yeah. Okay. In the earlier ethnocentric stages, he would say more like my way is the only way. In the later ethnocentric stages, he might see the other way, recognize it, but typically probably generally judge it negatively, right? And then can we move people to more ethno-relative stages? This is where I see my way of behaving as coexisting with other ways of behaving. And in the early stages, we had that judgment go away. It's a great place to be. And you're going to be more introspecting. So you can almost see the difference between ethnocentric, these early stages, and ethno-relative as the finger pointing to the other, to the finger pointing to me. Like, what do I not understand? What do I have to learn here? And in the later stages of the ethno-relative, we can actually also adapt and we can co-shift. So that would be where Michael responds also fairly Mm. briefly, more task-oriented towards the colleagues in Europe, but remains with his communication style with the colleagues in Manila or wherever he has them in Asia, right? And that is the place, that's a beautiful place to bring people to because now we're not judging anymore. I'm not stuck up 
on the different behavior. I can even, I can recognize it and even more, I can even adjust to it. So we want to bring people to those later at no relative stages. That's a lot of the work that I do actually uh, with companies and with teams. So can I just practically say, you know, in the case of Michael, do as what mm -hmm. you need to do, but let go of the judgment that these people are doing something that is unacceptable at work. As long as they get their <laughs> job done, is that how I should look at it? As long as they Correct. get to the bottom line of their task, let them do and let them be who can they be? Yes, I would say to Michael, you can't change the other person, right? And they are responding culturally appropriately according to their culture. So mm. yes, exactly as you say, don't get stuck up on it because now it affects, you know, you, you, you go sort of in a whirlwind thinking about these other people and you judge them, et cetera, et cetera. Just understand they're different. And, and if you want to, you can also adjust to it. And Michael, can I also say, if they're getting their job done, then focus on that part rather than on the method of how they mm. communicate also with you. All right, Bert, before we end, and I'm loving this discussion so far, but I have to cap it off. Can you share mm -hmm. if, if there's one thing that you'd like our listeners to remember as a key takeaway from this session about diversity that they can apply mm -hmm. the moment they go back to their meetings? What would that be? So for me, that mindset is the most important. And so if people can understand that it doesn't stop at learning a bit more about difference than looking at do's and don'ts, but it's also about adjusting your mindset and what will you do to do that, that would be for me the most important part. Because a lot of programs that are being implemented, a lot of strategies, a lot of work being done is just focusing on do's and don'ts and on knowledge about the other. And we have to go way beyond that. We have to go towards more ethno-relative, more intercultural mindsets. Well said. Thank you, Bert. And I hope our listeners were able to capture something relevant for their organizations. Bert, one more last question. If our listeners would like to approach you mm -hmm. or keep in touch with you about your consultation services, could you please give us mm -hmm. like an email address or a website that they can capture? Sure. I'll give you my name for LinkedIn. There's only one of me on LinkedIn. My name is Bert. Because you have a very unique name. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And my last name is Verkamer, V-E-R-C-A-M-E-R. -E -E and so for everybody with the last name exactly written like mine is family of mine. So I haven't found anyone who's not family of mine with, the, with that same last name. Exactly. Well, we, right? we discovered something new about you today. Then there's also a website, global-inclusion.com. And that's where you can find me and my two partners, Dr. Joel Brown and Dr. Amer Ahmed. And we are actually offering a course next year. If you want to be a practitioner in this field, we're going to give you the latest models and frameworks and lots of case studies. I know you like them. We like them as well. They're great for application. So global-inclusion.com or LinkedIn, Bert Verkamer. Bert, thank you again for gracing us with your time. And to all our listeners, we hope to see you in our next episode. Stay safe, gladiators mm -hmm. in suits, and keep on hustling. Thank you. Bye, guys. Mm -hmm.